Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where I speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by Richard Davison, who's a senior solution architect at AWS and who's been working on the exciting LLRT or low latency runtime for Lambda. Hey, man, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jan. I really appreciate it. Nice. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so uh, I guess before we get into it, uh, do you want to spend about a few moments just to talk about uh, your experience and uh, what you've been working on at AWS before we dive into LLRT? Sure. So uh, I'm Richard. I work as a, a solution architect in the partner organizations. I work mainly with partners to help them um, drive the adoption of, of uh, modern applications, as we call it. So that means serverless and, and container applications. So I've been with AWS for three years now. And I've been working uh, with this project, you know, uh, not full time, but as a, kind of as a pet project for almost uh, close to two years now. So I'm, I'm really happy to see that I finally pushed the, the, the button to make it uh, open source. Wow. This, uh, okay. So I didn't realize it's been such a um, such a long time. Uh, but yeah, for those of you who hasn't seen it, uh, the announcement, I think the official announcement was uh, about a month ago, I want to say. It was a yeah, just announced. three weeks, something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. So um, maybe I can uh, share my screen because uh, in case uh, anyone haven't seen it yet, uh, let me uh, share my screen. Um, so the LRT project or the low latency uh, runtime for Lambda is a specialized uh, runtime for JavaScript, uh, which promises some pretty significant. Uh, improvements in terms of the startup time, which is something that uh, a lot of people still talk about when they're considering Lambda as a general purpose compute platform in terms of the cold start time. Uh, and uh, the, the, the improvements here are pretty, pretty important. Uh, but when I did some tests for myself, uh, I actually found that uh, it was, well, it was actually even more uh, impressive than the, than the numbers suggest. Um, I had a Lambda function, which is just, uh, nothing called DynamoDB. I think that's what it does. Um, it, the, the cold start went from about 750 milliseconds to, I think, just under 50 milliseconds. Hold on, let me just uh, quickly bring that up. It's yeah, I was I was really impressed by the the, the by the, the numbers that I was seeing. Um, so I wanted to bring uh, Richard on the show and just talk about uh, there they go, yeah, the number I was seeing with my Node 18 uh, function was uh, almost 750, but then the, with just making the changes to run on LRT, it was brought down to 50. And on a few runs, it was under 50 milliseconds as well, uh, which is really, really impressive. And so um, I've got a whole bunch of questions about how you managed to do that. Uh, and one of the big headlines we saw was, uh, OK, it's running, it's using Rust. It's, uh, so there's a lot of assumptions about why that's fast. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, I guess maybe before uh, we get into that, uh, can we start from the top and just maybe tell us uh, what is the motivation behind uh, building this uh, custom runtime for Lambda? Yeah, uh, so I'm happy to, happy to talk about that because there's a lot of like nuance to this. And um, as you know, as a fellow you know serverless evangelist and a, a, and a serverless enthusiast, uh, there is quite a few discussions going on about the drawbacks of serverless. And one of those discussions have mainly evolved around uh, the introduction of cold start. So when, uh, for the first time, when uh, the Lambda service loads your function code, uh, it takes a little longer time than it does when once we have that loaded into the system. And this can introduce some latency, and that's often referred to as a cold start. And it can be one of those things that it, it become a bit frustrating for um, workloads that have a very uh, strict, uh, they have strict um, uh, resource requirements or latency requirements rather, uh, which makes some workloads not applicable or less desirable. And in this world of modern applications that we live in today, users ex expect you know swift responses, where kind of every action triggers an immediate response. You don't want to have that cold starts. In reality, cold start is not really a huge problem because they represent typically between uh, less than a percent and, and around a few percent of all invocations. So in production workloads with, with a, lot of, a lot of invocations, cold start is not a, like a major problem. But still, it can be disruptive to that seamless user experience that, that the customers and users are expecting. Um, 
So uh, I've done a lot of work, like both internally and externally, to before I joined AWS to try to mitigate these cold starts and see what we can do uh, about it. We have a lot of initiatives going uh, on at AWS to try to work around the limitations, uh, but that has currently been um, one of the drawbacks by by having a, a serverless first approach is that there has to be, you know, the, what what's what's the caveats, what's the things that you have to think about, and cold storage has been one of them. Uh, at reInvent, not this reInvent, but last reInvent, we introduced something called Snapstart uh, for Java workloads that allow you, it takes kind of a different approach that allows you to store a snapshot of your application's state and memory and everything and restore that, which can be faster, uh, especially since Java applications takes a while to, to spin up. There is no such equivalent yet for uh, other types of runtimes such as Node or Python. Uh, we're working on it, but um, I wanted to take a different approach. So in the current state, we basically build runtimes for AWS Lambdas. We have a bunch of runtimes. We have Python, we have .NET, we have Java, we have Bring Your Own, uh, and we have Node.js, and et cetera. So we have a lot of uh, already provided runtimes. But these runtimes were not specifically built from the ground up to work in uh, the resource constraints that Lambda has. So they are more general purpose. And we're now taking a general purpose programming model and execution, and we're putting it into an ephemeral environment, and we're putting it into a very resource constrained environment. So that might might come with some trade-offs. It, it works really, really well. But my uh, kind of take on this was, uh, if I start from the ground up, can I make it better? Can I make something specifically tailored for this type of environment where startup matters, but also uh, resources really matter. So make something that is very sparse on resources, that has really fast execution, that supports a dynamic language, and uh, that is like purposely built for, for this environment rather than to um, take a general purpose and, and make it adopted. So start from the ground up. And I found that also being, um, having worked with Node for more than 10 years, I, I, and of course, the popularity of, of Node ecosystem and uh, JavaScript ecosystem as a whole, uh, it's a perfect good, perfectly good candidate to start to work with. And another benefit of working with JavaScript is that it's uh, mainly a specification and it has a lot of different implementations in terms of different JavaScript engines. And the offerings that exist today uh, mainly uses browser-based JavaScript engines that have diverged from web browsers such as Safari uh, or Chrome. So you may, your audience may of course know about the, v the V8 engine uh, or also the JavaScript core engine that comes from Safari and the V8 engine comes from Chrome. So those types of engines are extremely capable. Uh, they are, have a very fast execution, but they, they require a bit of time in order to become that efficient which is a, a characteristic not, uh, not ideal for fast startup. So they were basically built for, for web browsers. So it doesn't really matter if your web browser starts in you know, 200 milliseconds or 300 milliseconds, but it can have a huge impact uh, when running, for instance, in a Lambda function. That being said, there, there have been numerous efforts to try to improve the, the startup performance of these JavaScript engines. My approach would, was to take a, a simpler engine that was uh, written by uh, Fabrice Bellard and Shelley Gordon. Uh, I probably butchered those those pronunciations. Uh, fantastically skilled programmers uh, that are, you know, the minds behind FFmpeg and, and Kimu um, and many other projects that have written an engine called QuickJS. So QuickJS is an extremely lightweight but very capable JavaScript engine. Um, so by incorporating a very very lightweight engine that doesn't require a lot of resources, I can kind of mitigate the cold start problem and have an extremely fast startup. So taking a kind of a completely different approach to so starting from the resources that are constrained and working from there and try to, to make it as good of an experience as possible. Yeah, I think that makes sense uh, when you know, when you're talking about the, I guess, a specialized execution environment like Lambda, yeah. uh, rather than trying to see how can we fit existing ecosystems into it, uh, I think it totally makes sense for you to ask a question. You know, go back to the foundations and see exactly. okay, what would a good 
JavaScript runtime look like for this specific environment? And I think, like you said, a lot of people that are starting with Lambda today are probably overthinking about cold starts because, in practice, a lot of the web traffic would be quite you know, bell curve and uh, they're quite stable. But, uh, but I have seen a few cases where you do have fairly unpredictable spike in traffic. That's where you tend to have to think about, okay, what's the impact of cold starts? And also when you have uh, you know, more complicated uh, microservices environment where APIs call APIs or so cold starts can stack up. I mean, there yeah. are a few cases where cold starts is a really legitimate issue that people have to think about, especially if they're running with Java or .NET. So that's where you got things like Snapstart and provision concurrency. Uh, but JavaScript is still you know, something that uh, everyone uses. I keep watching and reading about people now switching to Rust because Rust is uh, so much faster. Um, that's great. And I think for the on the individual level, learning Rust or some other programming languages is great. Uh, and you can benefit from that in your work with Lambda, but it's not feasible to say, let's just rewrite every single application yeah. that's already out there and retrain all the teams. You know, thousands and tens of thousands of engineers already are familiar with JavaScript. We can't just you know, go out and replace all of them or retrain all of them. So you know, having some way to improve the, the experience of existing JavaScript applications, I think that is uh, really, really uh, key. And you, you touched on something that I was going to ask you about, which is um, how does uh, you know, this new runtime differ from alternative runtimes? Like you talked about VA, you talked about the one that comes with Mozilla, but there's also been Bun. Uh, that's been quite a you know, big, um, I guess, a, a big hit recently as well. Uh, you yeah. know, it made a lot of noise uh, for being more compact, more lightweight, and uh, faster as well. So I guess uh, is your answer. You know, if I was asked you what's what differs LRT from something like Bun? Uh, what would you say? Yeah, so that's that's a really good question, uh, and and these are like fundamentally different approaches. So LLRT is not meant to uh, compete with with either Bun or Node because it takes a very different approach that obviously has some some drawbacks. Um, but if you start at the you know what's the fundamental difference? The fundamental difference is mainly the engine. Uh, and uh, another fundamental difference is the approach that we take. So if we start with Node, uh, it's an extremely capable project, and I'm, I'm, I'm uh, you know I'm very amazed by how far they've come with Node since I've started using it more than ten years ago. Uh, it's very stable and it works across a, a you know a, a large chunk of operating systems, even you know mobile devices, Raspberry Pis, everything and uh, everywhere is seems to be able to run Node which is uh, a part of their strategy. So their focus has been a lot on uh, both growing the ecosystem and uh, having, uh, having being a project that it's easy to contribute to with a large of its code footprint being uh, implemented actually in JavaScript. And it supports a wide range of operating systems and devices. Uh, I think that that focus has shifted a bit now uh, to try to introduce more performance and startup and things like that as well. But uh, backwards compatibility is also something that is extremely important for the Node project because there are you know millions upon millions of projects that depend on it. So it's very easy to come in with, uh, with with an approach that I have done and say that it's it's you know massively faster in some use cases because I don't have that legacy uh, and I don't have to support all those devices and I don't have to support all those APIs, etc. So. Um, um, I would, it would be not be fair to you know to say that this is you know uh, so much faster because it's better. It's it's a very different approach and it's not meant to compete with with that that, that project. Uh, and then we have Bun, which is also an you know an uh, engineering marvel and an achievement. Uh, I think Jared that has made Bun. I mean, I listened to a lot of podcasts when he's been uh, speaking and presenting, and I, I've looked at. Some, what we have, and I used it also uh, myself, and it's a very, very capable uh, runtime. Also, a bit of a different use case, it's more general purpose, and it also uh, distinguishes itself by being an all-in-one toolkit, which, uh, in contrast to Node, that you have to have external external uh, packages and binaries for, for doing like package management with NPM, or installing dependencies, bundling, running TypeScript, etc. All of this is baked into one single toolkit, which make it, makes it a fantastic developer experience. Um, so where LRT sits aside is that it's purposely built, again, for, for serverless environments. 
can run on other and other environments than, than Lambda, uh, but it's built for environments with, with low resources. Uh, so I don't want it to, to run TypeScript and I don't want it to have too big of an API footprint because that will add to the start time. So for instance, uh, imagine that we add, you know, or if we wanted to put uh, TypeScript support in Lambda, we can pull in a, a Rust dependency that does the transpilation on the fly. And then we load it, that uh, transpiled uh, JavaScript uh, or that transpiled TypeScript into the engine and execute it. That will add significant cold start time, which is a trait that we really want to avoid. So we'd rather see that you keep your ex existing tooling. I mean, you can even use BUN uh, to uh, bundle and package JavaScript for LLRT, right? Um, if you just use the transpilation. And so the, the focus has kind of been to keep keep the, the core extremely lightweight and do, do the uh, computationally intensive things as much as possible at compile time. So that's why focus has been to keep a lighter API. However, right now it's very light. You know, there's it's nowhere near um, as as feature complete uh, as we want it to be, nor is it nowhere near uh, supporting as many APIs or have a as large API footprint as neither Bun or Arduino. Uh, but again, it's a, it's a bit of a different use case. Where we want to be eventually is to have what's what's called Winter CG compliance. So Winter CG is a, it's a working group that tries to, um, where it's an incentive to, to have a shared common set of APIs across different runtimes. So across um, runtimes running on Cloudflare workers, uh, Dino, Bun, uh, I, I'm not sure if Node is in there or not, but to have uh, a common set of APIs that, that allows users to pick and choose basically what's, what satisfies their, their use cases. So in summary, LLRT sets itself aside by having a, a simpler, more lightweight approach, uh, but in trade-off you have a, a also less APIs that are supported. But with that being said, we try to make the APIs that we actually support as close to the node specification as possible. This has a couple of benefits. This will allow you to, you know, when you run into a corner, when you run into an API that you actually need, but it, it isn't supported, or it isn't implemented, you can switch back to Node and your effort aren't wasted. And I think this is really important because I I don't want people to build specifically for, for LLRT, run into a corner, and then all of that job is, is wasted. It's, it's a better approach. Uh, I, I reckon it's, it's, it's a better approach to have something that tries to adhere to a specification already defined that allow you to switch back once you hit that corner. Uh, another very important distinction is that since the engine is, is uh, even though it's very capable and supports ECMAScript 2020, it doesn't contain a just-in-time compiler. The just-in-time compiler is a fantastic uh, and a very sophisticated piece of technology, technology, technological achievement that allows you to uh, compile and optimize JavaScript code on the fly and translating it to machine code, which will make it very, very efficient. However, that compilation and, and that translation of JavaScript code into native machine code, it takes resources. It requires a lot of memory and it requires a lot of CPU. Uh, that's why you may see in a very resource-constrained environment that has a short lifetime, you will see spikes. You can see some latencies going up for no obvious reason, even though your payload was almost the same or your event looked almost the same, but you have a latency spike. And this is mainly because it's just-in-time compiler. Um, it has to evict, uh, evict compiled code and methods from its compile cache. So it's a very complicated piece of, of uh, uh, technology. It works really well for long-running tasks where it, where it can find you know the best ways how to optimize your your JavaScript functions while running for a long time. But it it um, it takes away some of, of some of that precious compute that we can use to execute the code uh, in order because it, it needs that for for compiling the code. So so both uh, Dino uh, Dino and Ban are, are using it, and it has of course significant performance benefits uh, for longer running tasks or loops that iterate over hundreds of thousands of 
um, you know, objects or call functions 10,000, 100,000, a million times, uh, we won't, won't see near the performance in LRT since it's purely what is called interpreted. So what you see on every line is basically what is get executed by the engine. So that's also fundamentally different. Right, that's really interesting. Um, on the, I guess on the performance side of things and the comparison with Bun, when the Bun came out and they made all of these uh, performance uh, claims, one of yeah. the things that uh, that got a lot of pushback from the Note team is that, uh, well, you know, you just basically threw away a lot of the backward compatibility that uh, we care so much about, and so yeah. you know the Note team has to carry. We know it's well, 15 years old by now, so there's a lot of baggages that people have been building on top of that that they haven't been able to. You know, remove so they can't just uh, take, you know, take down the entire house and build from scratch. They have to worry about the people that are living in there already. And exactly. so, Bun is able to make decisions that the, the no team can't. So they can't make optimizations that uh, you know that the Bun team, the, the, the team is able to, you know, yeah. uh, take a hammer to it. And I understand that the, you guys are doing something like you said that you're not using uh, JIT compilation because it's a very different execution environment compared to a long running. Process the server that's been that's going to be sitting there for weeks, months, maybe years at a time. Yeah, to yeah. you know, you can just optimize for that. Um, but in that case, uh, are there any performance uh, differences that are noticeable for the kind of workload that people often run? Because uh, when I think about the stuff that I do in my Lambda functions, a lot of them are I/O heavy. Um, very, very, very rarely would you would I have a Lambda function that are doing something compute in, uh, intensive. So. Yeah. I would think that the, the lack of JIT is not going to hurt my performance uh, too much. But from your benchmarks, from your testing, have you seen any sort of evidence in terms of, okay, what sort of performance difference uh, would you be seeing? Yeah, yeah. So, so your, your assumption is exactly right. So, so where LLRT kind of focuses right now is to be like that kind of the glue code, right? When you do uh, I.O. intensive more than you do compute intensive. So, for instance, if you do like a simulation or some heavy calculation, say that you do a lot, a lot of hash calculations inside of JavaScript, that would not be a good use case because that's, that's really where JIT, JIT compiler shines, right? Where you can find that, um, that compile path and that optimization based on profiling of the function calls to find, you know, how can I make this into machine code and how can I execute this? So, you see also um, all, the, all over across, across the internet, you see benchmarks doing like hello world web servers and things like that, which I think is, is you know, benchmarks are really complicated. It's hard to prove something with, with a benchmark. I think it's, it's easier to focus on real world use cases, putting something somewhere where you have downstream dependencies on IO or on network or things like that, because that gives a more real world, even though it's, it's still synthetic, right? Uh, but it gives somewhat closer to something actual than a hello world web server can do. Um, so in terms of that, I mean, um, even interpreted performance could be improved. Um, there are other runtimes that, that doesn't have a, a JIT compiler that, that per performs better than LLRT. But what we've seen in tests, and um, our focus has also been right now to support AWS SDK version 3. So doing uh, um, integrations with AWS SDK, fetching files from S3, um, putting things on DynamoDB, uh, yeah, you know, fetching data, doing that glue code, communicating between services, that has some significant performance improvements uh, in comparison with, uh, with others. And that's also not only for cold starts, but also for warm starts, mainly because um, that the lack of a JIT and a simpler engine doesn't have some benefits in this case. And I know I read this on a blog post from, from the, the V8 uh, official blog. This was a couple of years ago, so that, that these numbers have probably changed, but they did some benchmarks uh, running YouTube uh, uh, with Chrome and V8 engine without the just-in-time compiler and with the just-in-time compiler. And the difference was, what not, uh, was not huge. It was, of course was, uh, significant, but not enormous. I don't remember the, the numbers uh, on top of my head, but it was something like 20% faster, which isn't an enormous difference uh, in terms of um, the memory requirements and the, the CPU uh, requirements it, it requires. So uh, um, 
I mean, you can test this for yourself. So if you, if you do it like a very simple loop or you, you put like a million items in an array and you run it with Node or LLRT or even BUN, right? You're going to see a massive performance regression with, with LLRT. But again, should you do that in a Lambda function or are there better alternatives? Um, and to your point, you know, the best option would probably be for everyone to, or the fastest option would be, be for everyone to, to write their applications in a compiled language such as Rust or C++, but it's not as simple, right? People don't want to write it. They want to, don't want to learn a new technology. And we have an existing ecosystem that, of you know, a lot of developers and uh, a lot of tooling that already exists for, for different languages, such as, you know, uh, JavaScript and TypeScript that uh, people want to use. Basically, so it's not as simple as saying, you know, go go write everything in Rust. I think that's a, it's a bit more nuanced than that. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's just, I mean, switching languages uh, is 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 very big, um, very disruptive uh, change, and uh, you know, a lot of people just well, like I said, they don't want to learn new things uh, or they don't see the value in the changing everything they're doing just to, I don't know, make your code a little bit faster when you just when there's other options available, cheaper, less disruptive options available. Um, and I guess in this case, uh, so we've, we've talked about uh, some of the reasons why you know, LRT has got a really fast uh, startup time. The fact that there's no JIT, the fact, the fact that there's, uh, um, there's a really low, uh, there's a really lightweight, um, uh, really lightweight engine without uh, um, transpilation uh, and all these other things. Um, are there also other, I guess, the trade-off that you have to make, uh, at least conscious design decisions uh, besides those two um, to make sure that, you know, this runtime is, uh, is, you know, is is very fast to start up. Are there any other major, I guess, um, contributing factors? Yeah, yeah. So first of all, it's, it's of course the, the limitations. Like, what are you doing in there? Are you doing compute intensive stuff like calculations uh, you know, of hundreds of thousands of times, or simulations, or things like that? Pro measure and see, right? It it can be good for performance. It can be horrible for performance. So that's like the first limitation. The second one is, is to look at the API coverage. Uh, I, we have a uh, that documented in our uh, open source repository. So it, there's like an API.md in there that pretty much describes what it is. It can be improved. Um, not everything is covered that we support, but a lot of it is supported. So this is like the what you're viewing here now um, uh, on the screen is we have the high level compatibility matrix. And we have a big uh, sort of triangle warning signal there saying that even though I, I have a, a check mark for buffers, doesn't mean that the whole buffer uh, uh, class is supported. It's a subset, right? So everything that we support that has that has that diverged from, from the node specification is uh, partially supported. And uh, you can go into the api.md file and look at in, in more detail where uh, we have that compatibility matrix, more detail on actually what modules in there. So you see for buffer example, we have alloc, we have from, we have concat and byte length and everything inherited from a, a, a typed array of U, U, U8, um, uint8, uh, similarly with, with, with crypto, right? But again, we are working on bringing this to be um, winter CG compliant, which, uh, adds a bunch of APIs and we're constantly adding more. And it's also been really great to see that, you know, external contributors have, have increased and in adding bug reports, which has been tremendously helpful. And also the early adopters, I really want to give like a shout out to the people that have been helping this project. And it has been so fantastic to see the reception so far. Uh, it has been um, overwhelming to see all the traction it gets. Um, even though this is not like an official database product, I think it's so fun to see that people are excited, people are willing to try it out, to test it, even it's in its early stage. And, and um, I, the, the bug reports that have been coming in has been like fantastic, really clear, really easy to, to follow up and, and, uh, and find and patch. So that has been very helpful. So, uh, and it's so, such rewarding to see, you know, all, all the attention that is, this is getting. So I encourage people to try it out and find things be nice and remember that this is experimental <laughs> but hopefully uh, we will have it uh, a bit more capable soon uh, so we're working on it right 
So now that it's uh, public facing, it's uh, publicly available, people are able to try it out. Uh, um, do you have a sense of uh, what kind of, uh, what's the roadmap for this project uh, for say the rest of 2024? Uh, if someone was to thinking about uh, eventually using LRT in production, uh, yeah. what kind of expectations uh, should they have? Yeah, so, so right now it's, it's an experimental package. So we, we, we don't recommend, you know, to, to, you should use it with caution, right? It can change at any time. I think we're pretty clear about that, that this is not, this is not an official AWS product. It's an AWS labs. It's an experimental. This is us trying to figure out how we can make JavaScript an awesome place for, you know, or, or Lambda an awesome place for, for JavaScript rather. Uh, but during 2024, we will work on uh, winter CG compliance. So once we have that in place, and uh, it's still a bit of an evolving standard, there are some things in there that will be a bit tricky to implement. For instance, the Winter CG specification um, includes uh, WebAssembly, which is, I think, uh, to be honest, is something that will be a bit tricky to support in both in this engine and, and otherwise, because you basically have to bring in a, a WASM uh, engine into it. Um, so what people can expect during 2024 is, is more APIs added to support uh, the, the Winter CG specification. Yeah, that's good to hear. Uh, one of the things that uh, I ran into as I was uh, testing this out myself was that uh, um, it didn't work with uh, the Lambda Power Tools logger because uh, they bring it their own console object. And I think that's something that the, the LR team uh, runtime doesn't support just yet. Um, so yeah. there's a few things like that, which uh, hopefully, you know, we get ironed out so that, uh, you know, for very basic use cases, things like, uh, oh, I'm just uh, writing a function that talks to S3 or DynamDB, but I want my sort of tools set with me, my Lambda power yep. tools, you know, all of those uh, capabilities that comes with logging and the metrics, uh, you know, I like to have all of those still available to me. So, I mean, once uh, a few of these things are implemented, then I think that'll be become a lot more usable. Um, yeah, definitely. Definitely. And we're working with, with the power, power tools team as well to see what we can bring in there. Um, the, the biggest, I think, like blocker right now is that even though we have streams added in uh, they're, they're like polyfilled so they're running in, in in javascript and they're not like enabled for uh the AWS sdk v3 so there are some differences there um in order to get performance with with um, uh with this this uh, runtime streams should be native meaning that they should be implemented in rust and not in javascript for this project right um this, the Streams API is, is rather big and has a bunch of uh, edge cases. So, so that's, it also uh, is part of the Winter CG compliance and the Winter CG specification. So that is something that we will prioritize to, to uh, implement so that it can work with, you know, piping and file streams and also allow you not to uh, be limited on, on memory, right? Right now, imagine if you want to download a big file from S3, all of that will now be downloaded into memory. So you work with it with, with a byte array. Not good, right? If you want to have 128 megabytes of, of allocated memory, the runtime takes some, and then you download a file that you run out of memory, right? So, so that's something that we really want to avoid. Um, so having a stream support also in the SDK is something that we, we prioritize for, for coming uh, weeks or months. Yeah, that's a good point about the memory size because uh, with Lambda, you know, you charge by the, the milliseconds by the amount of memory allocated. So having a lighter weight uh, runtime that require less memory can also have a cost benefit as well, not just in terms of uh, performance and the latency. Um, you mentioned the Rust there, and obviously a lot of people would uh, read the headline that, oh, this is uh, built in Rust, and that's why it's fast. Uh, and we talk about some of the actual design trade-offs you've made, but how much of a, you know, how much of, of that, how much does the Rust come into it? Uh, uh, obviously, there's the QuickJS engine that's written in Rust. Um, uh, it's in the, C, actually. Yeah. In C, the okay. engine, yeah, the engine is in C, but uh, we're using a, a binding layer also from from a. a uh, a third party, which is uh, available on uh, on crates.io, so anyone can use it as well. It's a fantastic, fantastic uh, project that it makes it very easy to embed QuickJS Engine. So QuickJS Engine is in C, but all the APIs that we have implemented here are, are in Rust, uh, exposing exposing that. And of, of course, that's that's one of the major contributing factors to to the performance that 
has also been a design decision that we try to stay as much in native land as possible, meaning uh, Rust and C, and as few uh, and as little as possible in in JavaScript, because again, it has to be evaluated on the fly. Whereas with a native approach, we can we can do do it uh, at compile time, so make very optimized things. For instance, JSON uses SIMD JSON, so single instruction, multiple data. So it, it can actually parse JSON uh, extremely efficient thanks to the, the, the awesome SIMD JSON library and the bindings for us that exist. And that has also been a very, um, it has been very good to work with Rust because of the ecosystem that has become really mature. And there are so many crates that is like how we refer to Rust dependencies as crates um, that have everything uh, in that you can think about in super optimized versions. So base64 encoding with SIMD, meaning that it's super fast. Uh, we do uh, escape, JSON escape using SIMD as well to do it more efficiently for, for bigger uh, JSON strings and things like that all over the place. So we try to make it very efficient where we can and, and, and stick to, to Rust. So it has a huge, huge uh, impact on performance. And this is also, similar to the approach that BAN does uh, in comparison with Node. So as I mentioned before, a lot of the Node APIs are implemented in JavaScript, uh, in, in contrast to where in LLRT, almost everything is implemented in Rust. In BAN, they also have a similar approach where everything is implemented in SIG, which is also a systems level programming language, right? So uh, there are obviously uh, some performance gains out of that. But the trade-off is that you, you sacrifice some maintainability and portability, right? So, so because Node has everything almost in JavaScript, it means that a lot of contributors can come in and, and fix issues and find bugs and and contribute. Whereas uh, with with SIG and Rust, that um, contributor uh, capabilities are are a bit more restricted because it's it's a, a bit more complicated to to work with, especially if you if you don't have any previous experience. So if you if you come from like a JavaScript background, working with a JavaScript engine, uh, it will be I would argue that that it will be a, uh, even though it's of course very very uh, requires a lot of effort, it would be simpler to understand how the code behaves inside of uh, Node than it would be to 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 uh, to do in a completely foreign language such as Rust or Rust or C. Yeah, so that kind approach. of. And that kind of goes back to the point we were talking about earlier that the, there's just far fewer Rust developers available, yeah. and that makes uh, also makes it difficult for you to say make that switch between okay, let's rewrite everything in Rust because uh, you just can't hire enough developers. Um, so in this case, uh, if someone wants to contribute towards the projects, uh, what's the most you know, what's the best thing for them to do right now? Yeah, so the best way would be to to uh, check out the project and and. Uh start take take a look in there dive into the source code it's not you know it's not an overly complex uh, source code uh, again a lot of the credit goes to to the binding layer uh, or quick js as it's called uh, that has uh, um hidden a lot of of the complexities making it very simple to work with the quick js engine so uh, i don't want to take all the credit with it. so without uh, both quick js and the binding layer this has uh, would not have been possible especially in, in, uh, in the, this time frame. So I recommend to check out in there and, and try it out and find issues, you know, find bugs that doesn't work, report it. There is also, um, I, I have this on my backlog to add a list of basically all the Winter CG APIs that we don't support or that we partially support and add it as issues. So people can go come in and pick an issue uh, and start working on, on on features if they're interested in that. Some some are uh, simpler, others are more complicated that require substantial refactoring, uh, such as streams, for instance. But I encourage you to take a look at you know, regardless if you're a Rust developer or if you're a JavaScript developer, just take a look at the source code. It's it's not super complicated. I, I have not worked with Rust for that long, for maybe uh, one or uh, I think it's close to two years now. Uh, and I also come from like a, a JavaScript Java background as well. Um, so um, I think, yeah, just take a look in there and, and see see, and, and try it out and try to make it break so we can make it better and faster, right? Uh, and I, I got also a lot of, you know, questions from from both internally and externally, like why, why don't you just make Node faster, right? Why don't you make it better for serverless? 
and I think it, it, it's a bit, uh, again, going back to our previous conversation here, it's, uh, it's a very hard thing to do, especially, I mean, you can kind of, you can, can kind of argue that, you know, if, if this was straightforward, someone would already have done it right now, because there are a lot of really smart people working on node. And again, it's an extremely capable engine. And this, this is not trying to compete with it in any way. It's meant rather to complement and have a other use case where it can, it can achieve, um, it can work really well with, with constrained resources, right? Uh, and I think the biggest blocker for for uh, having a very, very low startup node is mainly that all of the APIs are in, in JavaScript. So it has to be JIT compiled, it has to be lexed and parsed and executed at runtime. But once you have that and it's up and running, it, it, it performs really, really well, right? Um, so. That's kind of the, the tricky part with, with Node right now. So um, yeah, again, I, I would also love to see you know an even even faster Node, and I think we will get Node significantly faster at startup, um, especially with with all the innovation that is happening right now. And it's an extremely capable project, and very smart people working on it. So I'm sure it will just do uh, improvements coming coming uh, coming soon. Yeah, but then the, the, their priorities were always going to be slightly different from yours because the, yeah. the normal execution environment for Node is not the same as the Lambda function. Exactly. Um, and so it's, you know, you're never going to have um, that much influence in terms of pushing them towards prioritizing the thing that works best for you, but maybe not for most of their user base. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's general purpose, right? It, it's uh, by design. So it it's works on a lot of operating systems, on a lot of execution environments. It works really well on Lambda. Uh, it, it works everywhere, right? And it's uh, like you said, it's a, it's a different use case. It's not like it's it's hard to compare. It's not it's not an apples to apples comparison because they have the different use cases. Um, yeah. The, the only thing that I basically share right now is that some APIs kind of look the same, and and they both run JavaScript. That's pretty much uh, <laughs> <laughs> the common commonalities in there. Yeah, and the thing about the performance optimization is that uh, you know, a lot of times people gravitate towards one or two big headline items like, oh, he's using Rust or using this engine or that engine. Uh, but when it boils down to it, most of it is just uh, what do you just what do you drop? You know, if you've got to do X amount of number of things, it doesn't matter how efficient you can do it. There's only so many, so much marginal gains you can make from those yeah. those those optimizations. And the biggest wins you're going to get is just by not doing certain things because they don't apply to you. And in your case, you know, dropping JIT, dropping a lot of the transcompilation um, trans and things yeah. like that. Uh, yeah. uh, that's the sort of thing that's going to make the biggest uh, wins in terms of uh, making it run fast in the Lambda execution environment. Because like you said, um, you know, the requirement is not the same as a long running yeah. process. Exactly. So it, it, to your point, it wouldn't matter if you if you run, uh, you know, say you, you use uh, Dino or Bun to run TypeScript directly, which is fantastic because you don't have you don't have an additional step. But then, if you run it on, on, on a container workload or if you run it on a traditional server, it doesn't really matter, right? Because it it adds maybe you know a couple of milliseconds. Uh, of course, depending on the on the size of, of your code base, but it adds some time that you don't care about because it it's not important. But in a, in a serverless uh, manner, everything. Um, every like millisecond counts. So um, doing that ahead of time at compile time, um, which you do for other uh, runtimes for Node that you already have those tools in place, that will give you the, the, the best possible performance. And it makes sense here also because this this um, this effort has been to have best performance. So if you can offload that and and move step uh, sooner in your deployment pipeline rather than having it at runtime. It will benefit, so it it's, um, makes a lot of sense if you think about it. Yeah, talking about TypeScript, another thing that I've always uh, wanted for a long time is to have a native uh, TypeScript runtime for Lambda. Because right now, you know, the transpiling uh, you know, to to JavaScript and bundling source maps um, is a is a tough decision. Either you have yeah. uh, nonsense the stack trace, or you have this uh, big uh, you know, source map that affects the code star performance and affects the Surprisingly, the, the the latency the first time you hit an error, mm. I didn't realize how bad it was until you had this API that every now and then you see a big spike in latency. It would be, okay, 
100 millisecond and then three seconds mm. and when I drive into it and uh, it turns out it was when you had an error the first time because that's when at one time has to load the whole source map to yeah. spill out a, a sensible stack trace. So that just makes it a really uncomfortable, I guess, uh, a trade-off that you have to make, a sacrifice yeah. you have to make. Yeah, and again, falling back to previous conversation, I also had had this conversation with a lot of customers saying, you know, Lambda should have a, a TypeScript runtime. Uh, but I I don't think that that's actually what you want because even though that it, it will uh, improve the user experience uh, or the developer experience, I would say significantly, and and maybe address some of the concerns that you have, it will add to to, to latency. So even though you don't have to ship a source map, it, it would still have to live somewhere. So this, that source map will now live in memory uh, where you don't have that um, uh, disk latency, but it would still have to be, uh, would still have to reside somewhere, right? Uh, so it doesn't disappear just because we run TypeScript. It's just that it will be transpiled by the runtime at runtime. So you're now paying a, uh, a latency um, you, you will now have, you know, latency regression and have longer latency in favor of a better developer experience. So it's a matter of priority. So my argument here is like, if you, if you shift that and do it as early as possible in the development lifecycle, do it at compile time and uh, you, ship, you ship the source map in order to get make sense of the stack trace, you will only have um, that that spike in latency when an actual error occurs, right? And then you might have more severe problems than latency. So it, it depends a bit on, on how you want to see it. Uh, and of course, those source maps can be really large. So uh, again, then I would like to see some like improvements inside of the engines, how they handle source maps, because that's like an XY problem, right? You see a latency spike in uh, in reading the source map, so uh, deploying TypeScript might be a good op better option. But what about you know the true source of the problem that the, the engines doesn't handle source maps really well because they do it um, from JavaScript, and a source map is basically a huge base 64, especially base 64 encoded. It has a special format I don't remember the name of it, uh, where it has to find you know have a copy of all all your code basically again and the reference to, to the translations. So you can find the original source code. It all has to be uh, handled by, by, uh, by the engine itself. So maybe if we can make that better, it won't be a problem and you won't have the, the severe latency hit and you uh, won't have the pay the penalty of, of doing translation at runtime. Another idea that I've had for a long time is uh, you know, Lambda probably needs something like a Wasm runtime because uh, Wasm has got all of these uh, bindings. So potentially you can have uh, you know one runtime that can support different languages because uh, you can compile, you can transpile Node, you can transpile C, uh, C sharp, and whatever yeah. languages. Um, do you think there's any sort of any sort of legs to that idea? Is that uh, just like a pipe dream? <laughs> Yeah, uh, it, it also again it's it's a bit uh, it's a bit complicated here because with Wasm you basically have to ship a runtime within a runtime, right? So if depending on what language you choose, you have to add all of the kind of standard library in there as well, which is uh, has been better. I'm I'm no no Wasm expert, uh, so by any means, but my understanding is is that one of the drawbacks is that 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 the the basic uh, Wasm execution environment is very sparse, and you have to, you know, if you if you ship uh, C sharp with with um, I don't know if you even can do that, but say that you can ship C sharp with Wasm, you have to com uh, you also ship the standard library to so get all of this dupl duplication of of code. Whereas you know the C standard library is ex extremely lightweight, or the Rust standard library you can uh, remove. Uh, the shared parts and have it uh, present already as uh, you know lib lib uh, libc somewhere or with javascript you have all of the standard library inside of node and and v8 and all of that right so you get a lot of duplicated code which contributes to the, the size uh, of the wasm uh, artifacts and that is not also something that is um very very good for for cold starts because they have to come from somewhere you have to load them um 
it has a, a kind of a tiered cache. So at the lowest level tier is kind of um, S3 where it has to be pulled, but usually it's, it's, it's a bit closer to the workers, but it still has to be loaded somewhere, which adds to this, this cold starts. So um, it, it's a bit of a mixed bag there if you, if, if you, you get uh, good performances, not, but it's a fantastic technology that allows you to, to um, uh, pull in pretty much whatever you want. But then I would argue that, that then you can as well use custom runtimes and pick and choose. But you cannot, to your point, pick and choose inside of a, or it would be tricky at least to have, you know, a single Lambda function with multiple languages in the same function. Uh, it's possible today with custom runtimes, but that will be pretty bad for both cold, cold start and interfacing between them would have a significant hit on latency. Okay, that explained uh, why no one's tried it yet. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably people already done it, right? But I, I doubt that they will see the you know the lower levels of latency as we see with basically every provided runtime. So um, I don't know, but uh, I, I suspect it will be hard to get that you know below 200, 300 milliseconds. But uh, you know, someone can can maybe show me something that they they have done. But people are really innovative and smart. They they probably find a way to to do it. Uh, efficiently as well. We'll see, we'll see. Yeah. Richard, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to us today and uh, great work uh, on the LRT. I'm really looking forward to uh, what you guys are able to achieve uh, this year with the runtime. And uh, I definitely, definitely uh, would suggest anyone who's listening to go and try it out and uh, you know, help the team with uh, reports and uh, finding bugs. And so, you know, we're all going to be able to get this uh, really fast, uh, super fast runtime for um, Node.js, uh, hopefully later this year. Yeah, yeah, hopefully. Uh, we will work hard on it and try to make it, you know, more compatible and uh, support a richer API footprint. And again, uh, Jan, thanks for having me here. It was fantastic talking with you. And thanks, everyone, for trying out LLRT and for all the, you know, cool words and kind words that people have been saying. It's It's been so rewarding to see all the buzz. Uh, but again, I, I want to give credit to both Fabrice Blard and Chilis Gordon, who made um, made a quick JS engine and, and uh, the people behind behind ArcWeekJS, the, the binding layer, and all the all the Rust community, it has also been you know tremendously helpful. So without that, it, this would not have been possible. So again, awesome that you guys want to try it out. Continue keep the bugs falling in, and we will <laughs> take we will take them off one by one, uh, hopefully. <laughs> so uh, it was awesome talking to you. Likewise, thanks everyone for listening. See you next time. Okay, take care. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.